Good morning, friends. As always, it's an absolute honor to be with you this morning. The, um, this is a church that punches way above its weight class, way too often, and it's just not fair. Uh, I don't know how anyone is supposed to get up here and talk after that, but I'm a preacher, so I'm going to anyway, even if I, even if I shouldn't. You can do it. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Was that permission or encouragement? I'm not sure. We're not sure. <laughs> For those of y'all who haven't met me, my name's Jeremy, and super glad to be here. And I bring greetings from another one of your friends. I was uh, texting back and forth with Ashley Guthis yesterday, and she, she was just overflowing with joy about the time that she has spent here this past week, and uh, she wanted me to send her love. So there it is. So this morning... We're going to take some time to talk about a group of faith leaders that we encounter in the Bible. Their ministry is marked by obedience and faith, by deep study and Bible preaching, by an emphasis on education and their dedication to the local community. They guard right theology. They guard true religion. They are concerned with holiness and the state of the people. They represent traditional values and morals. They resist corrupt government. They want to save their culture. They want to save their country. And they, they want to go about all of it biblically. Sound good? Y'all ready? All right, let's do this thing. Uh, we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 15. I'm starting right at the top at verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, okay, wait, so we find these people all the time, the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? Well, in the time of Jesus, there's a bunch of different groups running around. We encounter them uh, throughout the New Testament. There's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, all, all sorts of folks, and they're all dealing with the same thing. They're all aiming at the same target. They're trying to find out what to do with the Roman problem, because Judea has a Roman problem in that it is occupied and oppressed by this outside military superpower that has come to control the, the promised land. We were looking at Joshua in our Sunday school. The people worked hard for this stuff, and now once again they have lost it. And so there's all these different groups with different philosophies about what to do about the Romans. The Sadducees want to kind of go along to get along to preserve what they still have. There's groups like the Zealots that, depending on who you ask, they are terrorists or freedom fighters who think if we make the occupation painful enough for the Romans, they'll leave. If we kill enough of them, they'll decide it's too expensive and go home. Uh, there are groups like the Essenes that flee and cloister in the mountains. They wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there are groups like the Pharisees that clearly see the problem. They understand, because they're Bible scholars. If you look through the story of the Bible, in the Old Testament, there's a constant promise. Obedience brings life, and disobedience brings punishment. And Moses told the people and Joshua that punishment for disobedience would come in the form of invading armies. And so once again, the people have slipped out of rhythm with God and into their rhythm of disobedience, occupation, trying to figure out how to get back home. Even though they haven't left, they're still in some sort of exile in their homeland of Judea. So the Pharisees recognize the pattern. 
The people have disobeyed, and now they are in trouble again. So obedience is the solution. So there are scholars and teachers of the law, of the commandments of the Old Testament. And to make sure that no one even gets close to breaking one of them, they have developed, the, it really it's a technology. They've had this idea. They have constructed boundaries around the rules and laws and commandments so that you, you won't get close to breaking them. So if the command is keep the Sabbath holy, the Pharisees have added rules to protect the Sabbath, like you can't cook, you can't walk more than 50 feet, you can't uh, do this or that or that, because it might be work. Because who knows what work is? The Pharisees, they do. And so they've put these extra rules around the law to protect it and to protect the people trying to follow the law so they don't accidentally break it. So those are the people that have come from the capital city. Out, they've come from Atlanta to Plains to figure out what this Jesus dude is doing. Uh, verse 2, we've made all the way one verse in. Verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat. That's, I mean, do they not know about COVID? Um, but Sorry, my joke was too stupid. This, this makes sense, right? These folks are trying to get the people of Judea to follow the law. And now here is Jesus telling his followers, like, don't worry about that law. Don't worry about this law. Now you don't have to wash your hands. And the Pharisees, they got this, this belief that we found in some of their writings that if we could just get the whole country to just not sin... For a day, like if we could get people to not break the law for one day, sunset to sunset, God would send an army of angels to flush the Romans out of their country. And so they're very concerned with this popular rabbi traveling around, not keeping kosher, and telling people that some of these laws and rules and regulations, that they're not as binding or as tight or as rigid as they had previously believed. Jesus replied, and do you, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, that's the fifth commandment, and anyone who curses their father and mother shall be put to death, that's Leviticus 20. But you say that if anyone declares that what they might have used to help their father and mother is devoted to God, Corban, we'll talk about that a little bit in a second, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. When Isaiah said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me, God, in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. This is Jesus quoting Isaiah 29 and Ezekiel 33. Wow! Ouch! Uh, shots fired, Jesus. Uh, these are the people who pride themselves on obedience, who are working extra hard, harder than the people around them, for the sake of the Lord to live biblically. M more than anyone else around them, they are living biblically. 
Their ministry is marked by obedience and faith, by deep study and Bible preaching, by their emphasis on education and their dedication to the local faith community. They guard right theology. They guard true religion. They're concerned with holiness and the state of the people's hearts. They represent traditional values and morals. They resist corrupt government. They want to save their culture and their country. And now, here, Jesus is calling them hypocrites. He tells them that they're the villains in the story, not the heroes as they had thought. He tells them that they are far from God and that their worship is meaningless. In other passages, he will call them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but dead and full of rot on the inside. He'll call them poisonous snakes, sons of hell, and he connects them to the apostates of the past. He tells them that they do not actually know or love God. Tell us how you really feel, Jesus. Jesus seems to reserve his harshest critiques, not for sinners or for outsiders, but for these religious folks who seem to have uh, missed the forest for the trees. They're so consumed with religion that they have missed out on God. Back to the passage, verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. What an incredible line. This is top tier Jesus here. You see, in the Old Testament, there's something like 613 commandments and laws. And these commandments, they, they cover a wide range of topics from religious ritual, to ethical behavior, to social justice, interpersonal relationships, how to take care of donkeys. There's a lot of stuff in there. And the 613 commands, they're traditionally divided into 248 positive and 365 negative commands. That would be a really bad daily devotional. I might write that. 365 negative commands, one for every day. Some of these laws are about sin, and some of them are about ritual impurity or uncleanliness, and that's sort of the same idea, impurity and unclean. They uh, use different words depending on the translation and the context, so don't get hung up on that. With all of these 600 and plus laws and the layers of additional traditional and cultural rules and taboos and expectations, there's this whole system that's been built up, a whole culture, even a whole enterprise. Some people are getting very rich off of all of this. A whole enterprise that has sprung up, centered around how to remain clean and in proximity, closeness to God. And the Pharisees, they're at the center of this. This is their game. We're on their turf here. They're the ones running around telling everybody how to act and what to do, because they know, they have the answers. They're the Bible scholars. And Jesus has just told this crowd of people that the whole system that the Pharisees and religious institutions have built is kind of a racket, a grift. It's, it's not really what's supposed to be going on. What goes into you does not make you unclean, but what comes out of you does. His followers, 
they notice that the, the feathers of some of these powerful religious leaders have been ruffled, and they turn to Jesus, verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and asked, um, Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you said all that? Jesus is probably like, uh, yeah, that's why I did it. Verse 13, he, Jesus replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they both end up in a pit. Peter said, um, Jesus, can you explain this parable to us? Are you so dull? Jesus is in a mood in this passage. Are you so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. This list should sound familiar. Uh, there's 10 of them in the Old Testament. They carve them into a stone. Um, these are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Jesus' closing statement here, it comes with thunderous power. He once again borrows the language of the Old Testament, paraphrasing Jeremiah 17, 9, where the prophet states, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jesus says, for out of the heart, or in Mark, where the same story is found, says, from within, from what is in the human heart, is where real defilement, or purity for that matter, emerges. There's a forthcoming book that I've been working on with David Gushy, and I want to share a quote with you because I think he just nails it. David writes, evil actions and attitudes come from within, and they are more important than whether or not you eat pork or shrimp, or wash your hands in a specific way. Food and purity laws, or other lists of publicly observed obligations, can easily be understood not to get at the heart of morality. One can think of many people, nice, good, churchy people, who are very good at obeying religious rules, but whose hearts and actions are wretched. End quote. Oof. Jesus is telling us that it's not what goes in, but what comes out that puts distance between us and God. It's not all the outside stuff that defiles or saves us, not the institutions, the rules, the books. It's what's on the inside and how it comes out that is the largest factor in our maintaining a relationship and connection to God. But those things are good. Many of these things we, we tend to cling to, institutions, rules, books, at the gifts from God. But when we make them the, the main thing, the central thing, or the only thing, we twist them into curses rather than the good gifts that they were. And the human heart is capable of twisting anything, either for their own purposes or into their own prisons. Every gift that God has given, like the law, the temple, religion itself, it can be distorted. And Jesus is aware of all of this. He'll address all of it throughout his ministry. Um, 
this is Matthew 23. This is a, how the gift of the law has been distorted. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. How about how the temple of God in Jerusalem, that the place where God is, where you can count on it. If you ask someone in Judea at the time of Jesus, where is God? They wouldn't give you a flowery answer like he's in my heart or he's in heaven or he's all around. They would give you an address. God lives in the temple in Jerusalem, 1600 Jerusalem Avenue. That's where you find God. Um, so that's kind of a big gift to these people, but it's been distorted. Luke 19, my house was to be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And there's how the religion and religious life had been distorted. Matthew 23, you travel over land and sea, he says to the Pharisees, to win a single convert. And when you succeed, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Again, it seems that Jesus' greatest anger and judgment are reserved for those who use the things of God to hurt others, especially the weak, the vulnerable, the outcast, and those on the bottom or on the edge. So here's what I find so interesting about this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are following the Bible. Don't miss this. The Pharisees are following the Bible. They are obsessed with the letter of the law. They've studied the Bible more than anyone else around them. They know the book. They know the stories. They know the philosophy, the poems, the prayers, the proverbs. They know the teachings, and they know the law. And they have made it their mission, their mission, to obey the scripture and to teach others to do the same. It's their goal to enforce the commands of God. This seems like a good thing, right? It feels like what we should be up to. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? I saw that on a bumper sticker. Well, let's jump back into our passage from earlier and pick up that thread I left hanging. Uh, verse 9, or sorry, verse 5 said, But you say that anyone declares that what they might have used to help their father and mother is devoted to God. So there's this sort of a debate going on in the time of Jesus. There's a practice called korban, where you, it's sort of like if you leave part of your estate to the church. So you, you love Maranatha, you've grown up at Maranatha, you appreciate the ministry that's done here, you've encountered God here, and so you put them in your will. Uh, $10,000, $500, a third of my estate, whatever the proceeds are from selling the boat, however you do it, you set some aside for your church. It's something a lot of folks like to do. Well, they had this in Jesus' time, too, for the temple in Jerusalem. You would pledge a certain amount out in the future that when I die, this portion of my estate will go to the temple. 70,000 whatevers or a third of my estate. You get how it works. But these rules, this, this Corban rule, it seems that there was this problem where people would sort of use it like a tax haven, kind of. They would say, uh, $100,000 of my wealth, that I've sold my house, and now I have 100,000 spare dollars. And to protect it from capital gains, I'll go put it 
as Korban for the temple, so they get to keep the money, but when they die, it goes somewhere else. And it seems that there was a problem where they were holding Korban so tightly that when those in their community, those in their family, even their parents were in terrible trouble, that your father has died and now your mother is left alone and she can't work and she, she doesn't want to beg. There are no options for her and she comes and asks for help. And you say, sorry, mom. I already, I, that money's been given to the temple. So you, that's God's money. You can't have it. It seems that this was the practice going on. And Jesus says it's despicable that they've abused the law and used it to break the law. How, how fascinating. You see, what Jesus is showing us here is that it is possible to keep the law but miss the will of God. It is possible to follow all the rules but miss the point. It is possible to be religious and churchy but not really be a Christian. And it is possible to live biblically, but not be Christ-like. Maybe this is why, when Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, the righteous rule keepers, in Matthew 9, he reminds them of the words of the prophet Hosea. And he says, and I was musing this week, I might get this tattooed on my arm. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifices. As Jesus invokes the words of the prophets, our minds should explode with all of their constant calls for justice and compassion. Amos 5, God speaks through the prophets saying, I hate and despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies or church services. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look at them. Take them away and get rid of all this noise that you call worship. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the sixth chapter of Micah, the prophet waxes on true religion, saying, With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself before God on high. Shall I I come before him with burnt offerings of year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body to pay for the sin of my soul? No. God has already shown you, mortals, what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires from you? but to do justice, love mercy, and walk in humility in the presence of God. And these these warnings, they're not just for the Pharisees. I think we fall into the Pharisee trap. We we elevate and obsess over the wrong things, and, and we get obsessed with the rules and the laws and the codes and the things that we think God so desperately wants us to do and we just, we become workers. I think the Pharisee trap catches us because we're still doing this works-based salvation thing. 
like we could earn the love of God or we could deserve the grace of Jesus or or we could somehow work our way to salvation. But we can't. (laughs) We know this. We all know this. It's impossible. It's why we use the word grace. And what Jesus is showing us here in this, not what goes in, but comes out stuff, this grace that has been extended to us, if it's real, if it's actually in you, it will come out of you too. This grace that's been extended to you, you will extend to others. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he aligned himself with these prophetic voices calling for justice and mercy and humble living. And more than that, he showed us how to do it. What a gift. He gave us an example of what it would look like to live this way. And called it the kingdom of God. And if we are to join this Jesus in this way of living, in kingdom living, this new way of being human, we must continually remind ourselves that there is a difference between being right and being good between being religious and loving God, between keeping the rules and following Jesus. Because you can be biblical, but not Christ-like. It is time for the church, that's us, that's me, to stop asking if something is biblical or not, and start asking, is this Christ-like or not? Amen.